Welcome to the One Life, One Chance podcast. I'm your host, Toby Morse. Today, I have a very, very special guest, um, my friend, Richie, Richie Birkenhead, which I like to call Richie Underdog. Um, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Um, Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I, I think you gave me one too many varies in, in, in the very, very, very special. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for those people who don't know about you and your band, um, basically my podcast is I'm talking to people who have inspired me, have been part of my life, especially when I first moved to New York. Um, were you born in New York? I was. I, I was born in New York. I um, grew up mostly in New York City, had short stints uh, in, in England as a, as a little kid. Oh, nice. Uh, we, we lived in uh, in the south part of, of England on the sort of Sussex-Kent border in, in East Sussex in a little town called Ticehurst. So that was just Wow. For a brief period, when I was uh, when I was six and seven years old, um, spent my junior high school years in uh, in Long Island, and uh, and from high school onward, been in Manhattan. Wow, I didn't even know you were in England. That, that's that's. Uh... And actually, in my adulthood, I spent uh, about six and a half years living in Los Angeles. But that was. Oh, so that's before I moved here for sure. That's probably '90s, right? Yeah, yeah. I moved back. I was there from '96 to 2002. Oh wow! Um, and so, how, how were you in school? Like, did you get good grades? Did you graduate? Did you play sports? <laughs> I I got I got very high test scores, um, and I, I did play sports. I my grades were mostly high. There were some of the classes I didn't like. I kind of just said fuck it too. But um, <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I graduated from a a prep school on in Manhattan called the McBurney School, which ceased to exist. Shortly thereafter, it was there for about a hundred years. It's uh, wow. Actually, J.D. Salinger went there, and he mentions it in Catcher in the Rye. Oh um, wow, that's pretty amazing. And the Fonz went there. Ted Koppel went there. Um, Adam Horowitz went there. It was, oh, uh, all that's left of that school is a wiki page. Wow. <laughs> Unfortunately, it stopped. Uh, you know, it was a it was a private school. Once yeah. they ran out of uh, funding, somebody managed it into the ground, and oh, wow. sadly, it's no longer there. There's still a little inscription in the in the concrete on West 63rd Street that says the McBurney School, but yeah, oh, it's gone. That's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was decent in school. I <clears throat> I uh, I actually left college. I was I was uh, taking classes at both uh, NYU and the New School, and just uh, basically English lit and philosophy and stuff. Nothing that would ever lead to a lucrative career in anything but then i started playing so many shows that i just took a an indefinite leave of absence that's still going so <laughs> uh yeah I, I probably got like 66 credits as a college kid and then and then i started um playing shows and and driving around the country in a van and you, you know you yeah know man so so when did so how old were you when you when you got like exposed to that to music and stuff well, I was exposed to music at, at a very, very young age. My, my mother's actually a, a lyricist in, in, in musical theater, but she's also a great, a great pianist and, and uh, just very musical person. And, um, you know, my earliest music memories are, are both sitting under her piano while she played and, and like listening to, you know, Beatles records and Stones records and Pink Floyd records and, and headphones from yes. like my brother, my, I had two older brothers. So I've listened to their music like crazy. And, uh, yeah. So I, I got interested in music very early, and even when I was at like sleepaway camp as a kid, we would go to Tanglewood, and I'd see you know like Joan Baez and James Taylor play and things wow. like that. And 
and I, and I started getting into punk in the in the late seventies. Actually, when punk started to exist, um, yeah. a friend of my older brother's, um, a guy named Eddie, uh, he started playing me like the, the first Clash record and the first Ramones record. Yeah, and 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 immediately, I, you know, I was I was just sucked in. I was drawn to just how how different, how raw, and how how genuine it all sounded and yeah and it was also and even within that little new genre there was such a range of like kind of comic book silliness slash nihilism like the ramones and then there was the clash who was like very political and yeah. even as a young kid i, I kind of got that and got the you know the difference between kind of american and english punk mm -hmm. and i love them both and, sex and, pistols yeah yeah all of it and and my uh my older brother who was going to NYU at the time, um, he started taking me to shows. I saw the Ramones at CBs, you know, when I was way too young to, you know, to do that, but I did it anyway. Nice. And, and, and hardcore kind of followed suit. I, I was always into a very broad range of music. I never just like decided I, I'd be into one genre and mm -hmm, you know, the exception of all others. Cause I've just, I just love music and, and I never, you know, I never diverted from that, even when I was playing in hardcore bands. And, yeah. you know, I, was, I was still listening to everything. Um, but my fir the first time I went to a proper hardcore show, I guess, would be uh, in 1981. Two friends from high school and I went to Maxis, Kansas City to see uh, to see the Bad Brains. And I think the Beastie Boys. I think the Beastie Boys were on that bill. It was the winter of '81, if I remember correctly. Wow. And, um, and that was the first time I saw like real sl slam dancing that wasn't pogoing. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, like, yeah. like people really colliding with each other. And I, I thought that was really cool too. Cause to get back to your question about, did I play sports? I did. I played football. And, and I, so I actually really dug the, like the, the, the contact that was happening. Wow. Show, so. <laughs> Although I hated jocks. I played football. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so how, how old were you then? You like going to shows. That's young, well, right? So so okay so I guess now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself and let everyone know how <laughs> how ancient I am. It's still good to know that there are a few people in hardcore who are older than I am. Very yeah. very few, but very few. So I, I was I was born in August of 1965. So um, okay, you know. So I guess if we're talking, if it was winter of 81, I think it was early 81. So you know, there you go. You, you can yeah, see the mess. I was I was like a 16 year old. Um. um were you, I was were you sixteen? I guess fifteen or sixteen. Were you uh were you were you uh into skateboarding too back then? Was it because for, for me, yeah, like, punk yeah. rock and the skateboarding was so connected back then. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny though. Like when I first started going to hardcore shows, I, I was like a mishmash. I was in a I was in a band that was playing kind of psychobilly slash rockabilly. So we were like somewhere between Eddie Cochran and the Cramps. You yeah, know, I was in a band called the Bel Airs, and we got to play <clears throat> a lot of with a lot of really cool people. We got to. We opened for the Cramps. We opened for the Gun Club. We we played a show with Carl Perkins at the Mud Club, which oh, was amazing. <laughs> and um, so I was always from a. I was very precocious as a kid. So even like before I even you know went through puberty, I was going to like the Mud Club and hanging around just underground New York culture. So awesome. I was always really really drawn to it, and it was you know, it was very different from from where I lived. I lived on the Upper West Side. It sounds really silly. It's all on the same island, but mm -hmm. you know how different the Lower East Side oh, yeah. was from it's the Upper West Side. And then it was night and day, right? And, yeah. You know, um, so it was so 
attractive to me as a kid and and i had kind of a fucked up you know home situation so it was also an amazing escape you know to oh, just yeah. get to to you know it, it felt really special and and hardcore felt that way it felt totally. like this like this very close family you mm-hmm. know um, back then yeah totally I, I was talking to um just jimmy gestapo the other day too just like a, kind of a dysfunctional family too at times but regardless oh, yeah. of that i mean it was just just that community of going to these places and yeah escaping your home life whether you, whether you're single parents or had you know somebody pass away in your family or something I, like I'm, I'm the younger yeah. one too i have two other brothers like you also and they're the ones that exposed me to um skateboarding and punk rock but for me when i went there it was definitely like I don't know. I saw I saw I had like father figures in some of the bands I was seeing and looking up to these people and just being somewhere I felt safe, even though it didn't look safe from the outside perspective. Looking in, it looked crazy. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, um, absolutely. So, so when did you realize that you wanted to start a band, like do a hardcore band, like Underdog? Like when did you? Um, I, you know, I, I guess I kind of realized that you know the music I was playing while I was having a great time playing this kind of rockabilly music and in, in, in that underground scene, I had a lot of, a lot of rage and a lot of anger and a lot of things I needed to, to get out. And, and I didn't think about it in such a methodical way back then, but something was burning inside me. I needed this catharsis of loud, yep. you know, music and loud, angry music and, and physical like closeness with, with, with an audience. And, 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 you know, uh, I just needed, to do what the bands who I was seeing at, you know, at A7 and at yeah. Ukrainian Hall and at CBGB's, what they were doing. And I, and I you know, I, I just remember feeling like it felt disingenuous to keep playing music in a genre that was like old and had already happened, even though I loved it. And I still mm-hmm. do. I still love that stuff. I still yeah. listen to Gene Vincent and Eddie Cochran and, and early Elvis. You know, I still love all that stuff. But it felt it felt like I needed to get the music that was inside me out. So, yeah. um, you know, and I just, uh, it just kind of happened organically. If, if actually if one friend from high school and I, who was, he was the only other guy on my football team who also just hated jocks and, <laughs> and loved, loved punk rock. He was, he, he actually got me into stiff little fingers. When we were in oh, high school. A guy named Scott, he and I started, a band called the numbskulls and, yep. and we started playing together and playing that music in, in, in 83 and then i think we made that same year we made a cassette or 84 i think we put out this cassette that like was a demo yeah and by put out i mean we made like a dozen copies and <laughs> yeah. and like pass them out yeah it was nothing that was ever released and we started playing shows we, and we, we had some really fun shows opening for bands and we would go anywhere and play any show for any. So we, we got to open for GI and we played nice. with, uh, like for some reason we always ended up on these weird bills. We play in like Syracuse with these like Oxnard hardcore bands and stuff. <laughs> I remember, I, I'm trying to even remember who we played with. Ill repute oh, or like style like 13 or maybe ill repute. And then, who was the band? Fuck. I'm, just, I'm getting old. Who was the band that had that song? I hate you. Um, um fuck i think a lot of bands had that <laughs> me think yeah all. i think everyone did uh, nick was in, uh, oh man Not anyway right. but, but we played i mean we, we played a really fun show yeah in 85 uh, before numbskulls t- like morphed into true blue we played uh 
we played a great CB show at the Faction. And, nice. Uh, and I was, you know, Steve Caballero was like one of my idols from the time he like, too. you know, was like 12 and he beat, I think, Dwayne Peters in a skate contest. Or something. <laughs> yeah. He was like this child prodigy when, and Thrasher Magazine was oh, like, yeah. you know, put it on newsprint. You couldn't get it in New York except sometimes at Rat Cage. And so it was, it was like amazing to go play that show and, and, and see Steve Cavalera and see the faction and, and just, yeah. you know, I was, I was like starstruck and, and uh, awesome. but yeah, so that, so then the numbskulls morphed into, um, true blue when, when Russ and I, Russ was playing in Murphy's law. Okay. Um, this is now fast forward to 85 and Russ and I would always see each other at shows. And we were the only two people with skateboards, believe it or not. Wow. Like occasionally somebody else, would have a skateboard, but really rarely. So we always saw each other and we'd always be skating. We'd be like skating the same curbs or the same little <laughs> awesome. wood, wooden quarter pipe that somebody had somewhere. And we became fast friends. And, and, uh, and one day he said, Hey man, I don't think I'm going to be playing the Murphy's law anymore. We should start a band. And, and that band became true blue. And it was like half numbskulls um, still. And, you know, and then it kind of, like members dropped out and different members came in and then mm-hmm. it became, became underdog. And, uh, wow. Yeah. That's there awesome. Cause really back then, like, like you said, there wasn't many skaters. It seemed like skating was just a California thing. So, um, yeah, much more so a California thing. I mean, there were skaters, but in New York, it was super rare. I mean, I didn't start seeing like a lot of people skating, the, you know, the Brooklyn bridge banks and, mm-hmm. and that until, until, until like 85 until around then that's when it really started but you know in those in those early days of of skating becoming really popular all over the country and even in the suburbs of new york you know like 81 82 83 84 yeah um you know it was still kind of on the fringes in new york city proper yeah so I mean, I, there were a lot of skaters like Russ lived in, he lived on the Jersey shore. So mm-hmm. he had friends that skated and they skated half pipes. And, and I remember, yeah. um, in like 84, I think it was suicidal's first show in New York. I, I think it was at the Ritz or somewhere. And a t- there were a ton of skaters all of a sudden, and they all came in from Jersey and Long Island and stuff. So they, they were there. But yeah. The city yeah. Kids didn't skate that much. They really didn't. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Yeah, suicidal. I mean, just like growing up and like obviously Thrasher and the Bones Brigade videos and those skate rock cassettes. It was such a good mm-hmm. soundtrack, man. It was such a good combo. Like to have that. I remember like just watching yeah. those videos and watching like the Youth Brigade song come in on. Uh, yeah, was, yeah. Did you want to die? Or yeah. Like aggression songs. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I love that shit. So yeah, so for for Underdog, when so you guys when you guys came out. Obviously, uh, later on, Vanishing Point and stuff like that. Like, there was more like reggae stuff, and there's, and then the imagery mm-hmm. of like of the um the famous one, the guy c- carving in the uh, the bowl with the drain, pulling the plug out of the drain. But that was yeah. so cool to me too, because I I grew up not in New York, and I moved. I was skating before I moved to New York, and then seeing like uh, like you guys like promoting that stuff, it was awesome. Was Token Entry did it? That was later. Or was that before? I'm not even sure. Because it was skaters I, too, I, Timmy I'm, Jones. I'm not sure either, but yeah, they yeah. they I know they use like skate imagery and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's skating started to really take off, I think in New York around 86, probably, you know, like whenever that like second bones brigade video came out, yeah. that was when I started seeing like, it, cause you know, because there were, that's the one right where they, they're skating the Brooklyn bridge banks. I mm-hmm. actually saw them 
I saw them filming that by accident. No way. I, I, I did. I happened upon them. I was, I was in Times Square skating. I was just like <laughs> skating from like uptown to downtown, which I used to do sometimes. I would skate all the way from the upper side of Washington Square Park or whatever. Awesome. And I saw, I saw like Scott Olson drop off the top of a van or something. And then I saw a bunch of Pal Peralta guys. And I was like, holy shit. And I saw like Lance Mountain skating. And I just like kind of followed them. And, oh, and, wow. uh, and then they ended up at the Brooklyn Bridge Banks. And so I saw them them filming here it was just so surreal because you just didn't you never saw pro skaters no. in new york city then. yeah it's like it was absolutely surreal it's crazy yeah. like now like i'm lucky i'm friends with some skaters i grew up loving and like when you look at them magazines or on the videos you think that they're like these older dudes but they're really like close to our age it's crazy oh yeah yeah no, so much older. Mean, yeah steve caballero is like my age it's crazy yeah it's <laughs> what was your did you have a favorite trick back then that was way before the ollie i think was it uh well no no people were ollie okay. for sure but but i was i was always partial to uh to frontside grinds which oh, was yeah. actually an underdog song yeah, man. i don't think we ever recorded but i always thought that even though it's a simple trick it's just the gnarliest trick it's like love you, it. you know you go up and and you're basically you know you've got your back to the to the ground or the bottom of the pool or the mm -hmm. bottom of the ramp and you know you just just basically putting your trucks on either some concrete or some metal or yeah. some PVC. And it's just, it, I don't know, it just feels, maybe because it feels I agree. Uh, the most like you're kind of, you know, w without doing an air, the most like you're kind of flying. Because yeah. you're just kind of look, looking up and, and you're, you know, it's, hand, it's hands free. You don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. I just, I, I, I love, I, I always love the front side grind. I love the, the front side laybacks, you know. Like, I love those two, man. Layback grinds. Yeah. It's just, and it's all, a little, it's a little scary doing frontside shit. Backside shits, I like backside. Yeah, backside back shit always felt safe. I think that's yeah. why. I think frontside shit felt more rewarding because it, it was just a little gnarlier. Backside is a little safer. You like see where you're headed, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy how far like skateboarding's come to since then. It's insane. Like the Olympics coming up and. It's no, it's I look at it now and I'm just like, this is just bananas. But. Back then, I, I always liked people who either had really quirky personalities or who just were really stylish. Like, like nothing against Tony Hawk. I never, I was never a fan of of his. Yeah. And he came on kind of later. But, but I loved weirdos like Neil Blender and, and Lance Mountain. Yes. Like, you know, I just, I, I don't yeah. know. And the people who weren't like some skaters were kind of just like jock like, and they always always had like the hell. And, and I just wasn't into those guys as mm -hmm. much, you know, that who were like athletes. Yeah. I just liked, I, I always liked the weirdo skate guys. Yeah. <laughs> and Lance Mountain, Neil Blender, they're like incredible artists too, man. They designed a bunch yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so how, I know you did, I know you youth it today too. So how, yeah. how did that happen? So you're an underdog for, so that stuff comes out. Your seven inch comes out right as the first thing's underdog seven inch, or you made a demo first. Uh, the first thing that pr properly was released was the seven inch, you know, okay, on, on, on New Beginning, yeah. And, um, <clears throat> but there were tapes flowing around before that, you know, cassette like, yeah, live cassettes and all kinds of things. There, there was a, a few full length sets from CB's Madness and things, but um, yeah, so the, the seven inch came out, and, and at the, the same time that um. I was in Underdog. I remember getting invited to see the first Youth of Today show, which was they wow. were opening for AF at some place outside of the city. But they were opening for AF, and AF was kind of in that 
um, I think it was in like the cause for alarm mm-hmm. era where they were kind of metalish. And, and so um, I remember seeing Youth of Today, and immediately I recognized Ray from Violent Children. I'd seen okay. Purcell at a bunch of shows. I'm not sure if I ever saw Young Republicans, but I'd seen those guys. So I just started talking to them. I'm like, hey, man. And, and we hit it off. And I remember it sounds so funny in to be like, it was 1985, but I remember saying to myself, like, wow, this sounds like hardcore sounded back in 82, which was only three <laughs> years before, but it seemed like a lifetime before that. Yeah. And especially because a lot of hardcore bands were starting to sound kind of heavy metal. Yeah, they were. So, so it was so refreshing to me. And I was like, you know, it, it was like seeing, you know, SSD and DYS and, and those bands. Yeah. So I, I was immediately drawn to the man. And, and from that day forward, Ray and, and Purcell and I kind of became inseparable friends anyway. And, and awesome. Purcell ended up becoming my roommate when he moved to New York. And, and so one day it just kind of made sense. I was always hanging out with those guys. Yeah. And, and Purcell's like, you should, you should play in YOT. I was like, I would love to, are you kidding me? And, <laughs> and, I, and I'd love, you know, so I recorded the first album with them, Break Down the Walls. I wrote a couple of parts of a couple of songs, and, and, and Drew played on that album. And, and it was all very, it was just a bunch of you know close friends, and that was really awesome. I guess it created some tension with, with Underdog, and it got to the point where, you know, I remember sitting down with Russ. I was like, dude, I'm going to probably go on the road with these guys sometimes. I love to go on the road with Underdog sometimes. And, yeah. And I guess, you know, at some point, Russ was like, we want to tour at the same time. So you know, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Carl to sing. And that was a little weird. I wasn't angry, but it was weird too. Mm-hmm. Underdog was like, you know, my baby, I, I, I wrote all those songs, you know? So it was like yeah. to see, to, to like see another guy singing words that I wrote felt really strange. Yeah, that weird. would be. And I love Carl, I, you know, rest in peace. I, I, oh, Carl Iceman did it. Oh shit. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he, he was, so for, for a good portion and this, yeah, for a good portion of, I guess, 86 going into 87, or maybe it was all within 87, Carl was the the singer of Underdog, for you know, the live singer of Underdog. He never wow. recorded with him or anything. But um, while I, I did the Break Down the Walls tour, Carl toured with Underdog. That's crazy. I didn't even know that's wild, man. Yeah. Were you, um, were, you, uh, were, you, were you a straight-edge kid before you met those guys, or were you, did you get into that yeah. later? Yeah. No, no. Uh, I, I was actually into it earlier. I, I uh, you know, I came from a family with an alcoholic father. I was always kind of put. I, I actually went when I was very young. I'm not one of those guys who never did it. I actually did it really early. I, I actually I drank when I was 11 years old. Wow. I was going. I was going down a bad path, and, and actually, punk rock and and even just becoming starting to become aware. Mm-hmm even before hardcore really um, starting to become just sort of politically aware and sociologically aware. I realized I don't want to be like the kids in my school who, who, who like get drunk and like yeah. you know, date rape girls and mm-hmm. stuff, you know, like I, I just didn't want to be like that. And I guess part of, I just developed over time. I just developed a kind of disdain for uh, drinking and being around mm-hmm. drunk people and, and, and yeah. drugs didn't appeal to me. So and that kind of happened naturally after I absolutely did do that stuff. And I did, yeah. I did abuse it. And I realized it was, it was just the wrong path to go down. Um, and yeah, so I guess the first, the first time I started kind of identifying with it 
um, would be, you know, inspired more by, I think, Minor Threat. I was going to say that, yeah. SSD Control and DYS and stuff like that. You know, I love those guys. And I I loved, you know, I went to see all those shows and and it was always, you know, I I always felt weird with the labels, Mm -hmm. you know, even though I definitely X'd up and did the whole, the whole thing yeah. um, with you say, I've always, I've always had this, this, there's a weird paradox with, with subcultures that always kind of bothers me. And that is that people get more into the superficial style of it and the labels to the point where then the actual message, right? So they get, so, mm. uh, so a lot of people in that scene started to become very kind of, exclusionary and very yeah, judgmental man. and they look down their noses at people who weren't like them and i didn't it always bothered me it me still too. does about you know so it's a weird thing about non-conformist movements they, they develop a lot of like conformity within them and you know it's okay to conform to good principles but i think you know just when it becomes more about you know who dances the coolest and who's the hardest yeah who goes off the best on stage and I start to get like a little, and I did get a little turned off. You know, I have to say the guys in youth of today were never, ever like that. And, yeah. you know, touring with them, they were, you know, I still, you know, to this day, I love those guys so much and they were, they were truly and still are really good and de- decent people. And they never got like that, but I saw a lot of people in that, that scene mm-hmm. start to become very exclusionary and very judgmental. And that, that yeah. did bother me a lot. And that's like the opposite of what punk rock's about, you know what I mean? And uh, of course, of course, it was it was the ultimate, you know, it was punk rock. You know, should be the ultimate haven for individualists, you know, mm-hmm. people who who, who want to be themselves and not not conform to you know to a bunch of uh, you know superficial bullshit rules. Yeah, you can you can see back then, even looking at pictures. I, I didn't move there to '88, but like the different sectors, like there's the straight edge kids, there's the punk rock kids, there's the skinheads. Yeah. And like, I, I I had never tried anything either. My brothers were always getting fucked up around me too in the house, so I was kind of scared straight. And I listened to like Sex Pistols, but couldn't relate to those lyrics. I like the Clash, I like all that Ramones, but then obviously when I heard Minor Threat too, I'm like, oh shit, there's a name of something I already, I'm, I'm 13 and never tried anything. And I can still right. be cool and skate to this aggressive music. And I was like, fuck it, sign me up. That, that was it for me too. Like I didn't really know there was a name for it. But for me, it was never and has been still to this day not preachy whatsoever I, I hated that i hated when people started beating people up with weren't it was just so such a bum out it got violent and too you know absolutely it was crazy times back then um so then okay so youth of today oh yeah craig was in there too with you wasn't he yeah so he was uh he was part of the 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 road show like so we recorded breaking down the walls drew was the drummer um and uh, yeah, Craig, Craig played bass and in the, the touring band kind of switched between well, Mike, uh, Mike Ferraro drum, Mike judge was the drummer. That's right. Um, Craig played bass for a while. And then for a part of that tour, I remember Walter actually. Oh, wow. Bass a few shows. And then I, I was, I played guitar for almost all the youth of today shows, but yeah. there were one or two where I played bass. Wow, that's um, crazy! You guys are all the switching off. It's crazy. Yeah, we're kind of switching off. So, um, yeah, it was fun. I had so much fun. On you were so, you were so jacked back then too. Like, you were you like working out a lot? <laughs> yeah, well, I was. I was. <laughs> I, I got. I got like. Uh, 
pretty lean and mean in in high school. I mean, I I, I played football. again. I was yeah, football, a jock, yeah. but mm-hmm. in football, I wrestled. I was into, you know, back in those days, I could just, you know, I felt like I was immortal. You know, I would yeah, like, you looked immortal and I, shit. You know, you like break a bone, I would heal in like three. You know, these days, <laughs> not so much. But uh, but yeah, so I, I was I was definitely into you know. Purcell and I used to work out together every single day when I was, it was in youth. I was definitely into physical fitness, you know, it was all part of just being as alert and as, yeah, as man. healthy as, as straight and alert. Could, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, is it, did you guys used to, is this a true story thing? Since you brought that up, do you guys would, when you're doing weights, you got spell out straight edge or something? No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. But, but one, but one, one thing that was kind I thought of, that was so hard that that was awesome. Go ahead. Yeah, that, that, I like that. That's a good anecdote. I never heard that. That never <laughs> that never happened. But I remember once before a show in, in somewhere like Lawrence, Kansas, or somewhere, Purcell and I we couldn't find a gym that day, so we were doing we were doing dips like bar dips, but like on like two tables that we pushed together Sick. or something. And uh, and some kids walk over and they go, "Are you guys wrestlers?" <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember. Without missing a beat, Purcell goes, no, what is it today? That's that was like, sick. it reminded me of, uh, you know, uh, in rock and roll high school when, when they go, we're not students, we're the remote. Yeah, it's so awesome. It's like, it's like we, that kind of a moment. So at that time of touring with you through today, what did, did you start feeling like there was, did you, like just seeing that connection with people, like, because for, for what they were singing about, what that message was, it was such... Nobody was talking about shit like that, especially in that type of music. You know what I mean? Talking about making a change and it's positive and being drug yeah, free and being conscious. You know, you're exactly right. Nobody was talking about that. Like everyone kind of takes that for granted now, and it even became like a, a parody of itself. But back then, you're absolutely right. Nobody was talking about that shit. I, I remember like you could the, the difference was so stark. I remember a show we played in Detroit where. Um, where actually my Les Paul got stolen and, and a bunch of other stuff. Damn. But I remember we played with this man, Boom and the Legion of Doom, and they were like kicking around a severed deer head on stage. And, Holy you know, shit. And, and it was like, you know, everyone was just into this nihilistic, like it was a bunch of people who I guess had missed actual punk, but they they wanted something that was just as nihilistic. And shocking and, uh, and shit, yeah. Shocking, yeah. It's like kids who like like cutters and shit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it was kind of like come to, you know. I, I kind of felt like we were trying to lure people from the dark side, you know. So totally lure them, lure them from the empire to join the rebels. You know? Yeah, but, um, but yes, yeah, so it, it was definitely like that back then. Because well, because Minor Thread had the one song, but you know, it wasn't. It was just Ian who was straight. It's not the whole band. So then you could take it's inspired, and it's the whole band, and it was xed up, and it's just like. Everybody looks young yeah. and they're like in shape, and it's just so much energy. It's just I don't know, man. I thought it was just but also minor threat were were had ceased to exist at that point. Yeah, yeah, and, totally. Yeah, you know, so there was nothing else around like that. Mm-hmm. You, know? Um, you know, I guess at the beginning of Youth of Say, it was still like the end of like SSD, but their last album was How We Rock or whatever, and so that's right. That, it, it had all gone away. Yeah, and uh, but as we as we toured Breakdown the Walls, you, there were these little groups, these little factions of, of straight edge kids everywhere we went. And, awesome. and it was actually cool that these, the crowds that would see us were a total melting pot. There would be kids with mohawks and mm-hmm. like, you know, safety pins through their noses and shit and going off to Ether today. So it was, it was amazing. We weren't just like preaching to the converted. The way yeah. It became 
a little later on. What's amazing about that, that was like pre-internet, pre-phones, and like it was just the word was spreading across the country, whether it was through, who knows, fanzines or reviews or whatever, just how that word spread is incredible to think about now because it's almost impossible to think about it with phones now, but it's so cool. Yeah, I mean, the world is, is just a global village now, so there's no... That's why there's no regional, you know, anything, you know, I mean, the, the, the great, and I'm not trying to say, there's a lot of amazing things about the internet and the fact that we can all like reach each other from anywhere. Yeah, blessing and a curse. But yeah. there was a cool thing about the, how things were so regional. So like West Coast hardcore sounded so different from Boston hardcore or New York yeah, hardcore. Totally. hardcore. But in a very natural, organic way, these were insulated regional scenes that developed their own style so yeah. like you could listen to kids at the black hole and then you could you know or, or then you could listen to sit home and rot and, and or, or yeah. listen to you know straight edge or yeah or you know seeing red and those they were all so distinct from each other and and what you have post internet is just basically pick you know bands picking which sound they want to emulate like 100 do we want to sound like a victory band or do we want to sound like a revelation band? true we want to sound like and that's fine and it's and everybody has influences and everyone emulates things that came before them to a certain degree yeah but it was just great it was great when you had these different regions in the country that developed their own unique styles of hardcore yeah for sure um so the Break Down the Walls record, I'm sure you didn't realize when you were recording how much of an impact it was going to have on the world. I mean, that record just, everything about that record is a pure classic. And the lyrics is everything about the message, the packaging, the lyrics, is everything is just, when you when, when you live in it and doing it, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just making a record with my friends. You know, it's like. Oh, yeah, yeah. It didn't, we had no idea that, yeah, it was literally just making a record with my friends. I remember we were, we had so much fun making that record. I remember like Ray and Drew going back, you know, cause Ray is also a drummer and he would sit down with, you know, he'd sit at the kit and be like, Drew, what if you did this? And Drew would be like, Damn. no, I'm going to do this. And the, and they'd have nicknames for like different drum riffs like that, that Drew came up with. Like one was called like the chicken wing and one was, it was just like, That's amazing. it was just so much fun. And we, we just, we were always joking. I mean, um, that was such a good time making that record. It was literally, it's so infused with positive energy cause it was, it was, created in such a positive atmosphere yeah and and you know even to the point where like you know how ray turned uh we just might in the time to forgive you know right it was like the Mm -hmm. it was like peak positivity when that record was uh recorded and it's all it's all real it's all yeah you know that emotion is 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 pure and real there's nothing contrived about it you know some people might consider it corny but you know that it was all like really genuine every every word of that every riff that's awesome and 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 in the new york scene there wasn't nothing like that so did you guys get not backlash but was there a weird thing like everybody was no. kind of versus rage because everybody was cool about no i think i think everyone kind of respected each other i mean yeah. i'm sure that i'm sure that people poked fun at at youth of today but when it came right down to it i think people respected that youth of today uh, just kind of had the the courage to just be this unabashedly positive, you know, anti-nihilism kind of yeah. thing. But but Youth of Today, we as the members of Youth Today, and I can tell you Ray and Purcell still absolutely love Murphy's Law and the Chromax and Agnostic mm-hmm. Front and yeah. the Nihilistics and yeah. Major Conflict and the Mob mm-hmm. and on and on and on and on. We loved New York hardcore so much. Yeah. I mean, so much. And we we 
you know, and, and as a band, you could say, even when Ray and Purcell started the band in 85, they knew they were standing on the shoulders of people who came before them. So they, they never had anything but the highest reverence and appreciation sure. and respect for the, the you know, so-called godfathers of New York Cardinal mm-hmm. and still do. Did you see that I documentary? I did. I did. So it was, good, it was, man. Yeah, it was great. I, um, I, I liked very much that it was just it focused on the band as opposed to having a million people from a million different places talk about their true. idea of the band and their impression. That, that's how I thought it really distinguished itself from a lot of those. Yeah, it was a, just a great story and filmed really well too and everything, just the, the relationship yeah. Roger and it's, it's awesome, man. Um, yeah, yeah. I was going to tell you, so one one thing on a, on a fashion tip that I, that I got from Youth of Today too is when you, everybody started rocking like the Jordans and shit because I, I only seen people where Jordans was Michael Jordan and then in the Bones Brigade videos when those dudes started rocking yeah. Jordans to skate. But I think Youth of Today was the first band to start rocking like the high Nikes and shit. Yeah, because definitely. They, they definitely were. It's funny because the one thing I'll credit myself with before Youth of Today, <laughs> and I know, I, th- there's two things that I'm going to give myself credit for, and and, and I no one will ever convince me otherwise because I know for a fact <laughs> till the day I die, I'll swear on the fucking lives of anyone I hold near and dear. Um, I had the first, the first, I was the first person in the scene in the New York hardcore scene to wear vans off the walls when you could like order them from wow. the West Coast only or Holy order them directly. Shit. And I am definitely, That's absolutely, amazing. 100% the first person who had an X swatch absolutely because wow. i was living i was living on thompson street at the time and, and and a swatch shop was opening or had opened in soho it's still there and i remember they had i went i was in there and they had a picture of it and it wasn't out yet i remember telling the person at the store i was like the second these come in even if you just get like samples for yourselves i need this fucking watch <laughs> and, and the woman from the store called me and i got it the fucking first one that arrived in new york city at the holy, holy shit this is big facts right here being said holy and, shit and, and i always just wore it and i never said anything about it and i went on tour with it and and, and then slowly but surely it like that thing crept up. into the, the consciousness of the hardcore scene but it wasn't until much later that i started seeing other Parker kids rock. Wow. So, the, so, so, we're going to go on record saying the first X watch and then the first pair of vans off classic, the wall. Off, off the wall. High top off the wall. Yeah. Wow. 100%. Dude. Going on the record. I'll go to, I'll go to, fuck, <laughs> I'll, I'll go under oath and, and <laughs> but yes, you could today absolutely was the first band that I saw wearing like Jordans, etc. It was so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was always like skins wearing boots, but then it was like, I call them like sneaker skins, like, that's, that was yeah, man. Just like all the imagery from that and the fucking yeah, champion hooded champion sweatshirts. Dude, it's so crazy how big champion is now. It's like a, it's insane. My son's like, I want to get some champion. I'm like, really? Like it's it came back. It's crazy. I, man. I always tried to be like a little like try to do something a little different. Probably to my detriment. It's like the same way that like you know, underdog wanted to be on like some weird label. And so <laughs> rev back then. Like, <laughs> so, so like when those guys, when I was on tour with, uh, with youth of today and they were rocking Jordans, I had my Ewing Adidas, you know, things like yeah. that. Like I, I always had to do something a little, a little different, but then I, I, I rock some Jordans too. I think with underdog, uh, I'm, I was captured on, on film rocking it. <laughs> were you were you um were you into hip hop back then too as a kid or just Yeah, yeah, I was very, very much into it. I used to in fact um 
Yeah. In, in like, I was going to shows at the Roxy in like 82 and, wow. you know, like the treacherous three and the fearless four awesome. and, and all that stuff. And I used to listen to Mr. Magic rap attack and, uh, and Molly Marl and all that stuff on, on, uh, on KTU and BLS. Yeah. Um, from, you know, going back to, you know, from like 79, 80 uh, until those shows stopped playing. Um, I, I guess I, I didn't remain as into hip hop later when it's when it just kind of became less raw and mm-hmm. less kind of, you know, when it started getting, I don't know, maybe around like from Yo MTV raps on, yeah. I, I didn't start disliking it in any way. And in fact, there was a lot of stuff I loved all, I would say all the way through like the early nineties. Public you know, Enemy, was, all this Wu-Tang. Like, yeah. 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 So, like the first Wu Tang record's incredible. Incredible. Right? And I loved all the tribe records and things like yes. that. But, but then it started, for me, that's like the last, like, I would say Wu Tang is like the end of it all. Like, 93, 94 is kind of the last great, to me, like the last great hip hop. You know, I mm-hmm. just, I, I just kind of became less interested in it. You know, when yeah. it went from like, when it went from like gold rope chains to like helicopters and Bentleys and shit, then I was like, I was off. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, this is a little fucking too much. Shiny suits and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I was very, I was very into, uh, I was very into hip hop, and I actually there were like people I admired lyrically, you know, like being a lyricist. So there yeah. were people like like rock him and like Best. believe it or not cool modi who never had good music mm. behind him but he was he was actually as good a lyricist as any of them or like uh you know i remember listen like to this day i'll listen to like uh the symphony you know molly Marl, yeah. like the first one and and some of those guys what they were doing then like whether it was king or you know or uh you know uh, what's his name? Polo and, and yeah, yeah, like all those guys. Like, would you rap in Polo? Yeah, some of them lyrically were just absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. When did you, when but, did you uh, when did you start like realizing you were a writer, like writing lyrics and stuff? Well, I did that from a very early age. I mean, even before I was in bands, I was writing writing poetry and writing short stories nice. and writing. So even when I was in like this rockabilly band that um. You know, I was in that band when I was 15 years old. I was writing the lyrics awesome. for like our original songs, and they were like, kind of like cramps, like you know, like yeah. I remember and songs like "Teenage Bloodbath" and like uh, "Vampira" before the, before I heard the Misfits song. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, oh no, I'm sorry. Mine was called Vampirella. Vampirella. Yeah, that's right. Mine was called Vampirella. Um, yeah, so I was, I was writing this like you know, horror themed like psychobilly songs and stuff. And then, but but I, I was always into into writing lyrics. Yeah. From from a very, very early age. And I always lyrics were always really important to me with, with music. So mm-hmm. you know, it's why as a kid, you know, i before there was punk, before I was exposed to punk, before it came into existence literally, you know, I worshiped David Bowie mostly because of his lyrics. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I there were just certain people. Um, I was o- I was always drawn to lyrics. It was always a really important aspect of of the music for me. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like the Vanishing Point's a perfect record lyrically, everything musically. Um, I love that record so much, and I feel like oh, thank you. 
Um, when, when so after that Youth of Today tour, you came back. So obviously you went back to Underdog. So what was the time frame in between that and then doing Vanishing Point? Um, I remember. I think the there was just a show. We were playing at the end of the Breakdown the Walls tour. Yeah. I remember feeling inside that um, I really, I like, I love these guys and I love this music, but I really miss like expressing myself with a microphone and, yep. a, and, a, and a pad and a pen and like writing words. And, and I just, um, I remember saying to Ray on stage, I think before the set started, I said, Ray, I love you. I think this is my last show. And Damn. he like, gave me a big hug. And during the set, he said, hey, everyone, it's, it's Richie's last show. And I think like that night, I, I, I had the pad and pen out. And I was just like writing words and just, wow. uh, you know, and there were other things going on in my life that I just needed to like get out musically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, so it, there was really no, it, it was a smooth transition. It was like, I was playing in both bands. I went on tour with Youth of Today and kind of temporarily got replaced in Underdog. Yeah. I I played my last show with Youth of Today after you know we, we made an album, we toured the album. I played my last show and I think I was on the phone with Russ the next day. And we were like, hey man, you know, I miss I miss Underdog, and that was that. Was what what like, year was that? You remember? That was '87. Okay. You know what's amazing about what you just said? You were like. I told him on stage this is my last show, and then and he and he just gave you a shout out about it. And it was just that was it because you were friends. You can't do that now with bands. You have to talk to my manager. I'm lawyers. Like it's it's like just think yeah, of how bands exactly. are now. It's like businesses. It's crazy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. <laughs> it's wild. He's like, okay, cool. We're friends. I get it. You're gonna do something else. That's awesome. Um, yep. So then you came back and started writing that record. I guess right. Yeah. Yeah. It was. Uh, I had some of it. I had already kind of written just like sitting around with my guitar mm-hmm. in fact like the like the song the vanishing point was just like a chunky thing that i would just play on my guitar all the time it was just in my head and i was like one day i'm going to turn that into a song i'm going to write some words for it and uh certain things or like the uh the reggae riff that became with the song without fear yeah, I, great song that was, man. i was playing that even while i was in youth say whenever i had downtime i'd just be sitting around guitar and be playing those little upstrokes and those little minor and major chords like yeah. the little triads that became the that became without fear so there's always like things that like that in my head there's always chord progressions and melodies in my head and then like i'll want to say something and I'll, I, I'll either like adapt like a poem that i wrote in my notebook or i'll just be like what is this this chord progression that's in my head all the time what is it saying to me is it is it sad? Is it ang- is it mm-hmm. filled with angst? Is it angry? Is it this? Is it that? What am I wanting to say right now? And the songs would just kind of form that way in my head. It would start usually with me just sitting around with my guitar, just on downtime. And, and yeah. these things would just, I felt like I pulled these things out of the ether, but they'd be just on repeat in my head. I had this little playlist in my head of chord progressions and things. So, awesome. so the vanishing point was, probably mostly written musically in my head while I was in youth of today. Damn. And then it just turned into sort of like demos and then, um, turned into an album, you know, just over time. 
Yeah, man. I remember um, well, shit, Back to Back's one of my favorite songs. It's crazy. I'm in my office right now. I'm going to send you a picture after. I have this collages. I made like four different frames. It's all my favorite album covers. And I'm looking at Vanishing Point right now on my wall in my office. Um, oh, it, it was so cool to be there, too. I got to be at that release party where you guys played with Swizz at the Pyramid. I remember there was a picture oh, in Thrash. Yeah. I was like, oh, my God, I'm in Thrash. I was, I'm standing in the background <laughs> and shit. Um, you remember I used cool. to make those beaded necklaces? I gave you one. I used to rock my necklace. Uh, and shit. Yeah, very well. Yeah, <laughs> so, I remember very well. Yeah, the red, green, and gold. And black yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Absolutely. but that, that record was so amazing. So what was the reaction to that record when it came out? Because it did have some reggae on there, some more singing stuff. It wasn't just like straight up like it was different. You know, it's weird. Sense. I think I, I remember with Underdog, and, and I think I've always done this with every band. I've always, I've always found myself in bands that were kind of on the fringes as far as style and music and everything else because I, I, I always had an aversion to like – writing songs to it to like a template or to try to like fit into a, a scene you know mm -hmm. i love the scene so i actually never concerned myself that much with with anyone who had a negative reaction because it was i love that me, it was like i'm you know life is short like i'm not yeah I'm, I'm sorry that i'm not doing this like not working toward like a brief that you gave me on how like this should be so <laughs> um I can tell you that when we played those songs that were that were inspired by or had parts that were full on reggae, yeah, um, the the live reaction was always great. I think people mm -hmm. you could feel it in the room. People loved it. I think they welcomed this like different. You know, obviously the the we were inspired very much by the Bad Brains. Yeah, we also all loved reggae, but the, I think the way our take on it was very different from 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 the Bad Brains. You know, the, yeah, totally. Um, you know, aside from like obvious reasons, and they were definitely had much more, you know, um, kind of roots in in hardcore. I remember even when I saw the, the Bad Brains in '81, when I think there was only the Pay to Come seven inch, and it didn't even have like the printed sleeve yet. It was like the first iteration of it. Damn. But I remember they were still they were dressed kind of like root boys. They didn't have dreads at that point, but they um, they were playing dub. You know, like these long like dub uh kind of improvised mm -hmm, things jams, yeah, live yeah. Set, and they would break into like reggae jams and, and i think that stuck with me i think that maybe because that's the first hardcore i ever saw mm -hmm. it always resonated with me because i always loved i was i you know even back then as i said i always loved a lot of music and i was i was really into the the studio one label and i had a lot of the seven inches and things so like mm -hmm. all this dub music on studio one yeah for some reason more so than trojan i got into the trojan stuff later but i was really into studio one and and i saw like parts of the songs the bad brains were playing really sounded like studio one dub to me and and i guess i just always loved it and with underdog it just kind of happened organically i would be writing songs and then parts of those songs would just turn into little reggae riffs on the guitar i love that man and it just developed but yeah the reaction was good at least live yeah you know, that was great. Sure. Did, did you ever did you ever feel like you wanted to? Was there a point in Underdog where you're like I want to do this as a career, or did you always have like not just a plan B, but were you working jobs in between tours and stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, I was always doing other things. A lot of times it would have to do with visual stuff, like either like art directing mm -hmm. things, or um, you know, and I was always into all things visual. I was always into yeah. art and photography and. And so I would have these little things. I, 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 I did 
kind of odd things. I remember I worked for a, a company that produced theater for a while. I did, um, I did all manner of things. And then, uh, I guess it just music became like a full-time thing after a while. Just, yeah. I was always either recording or touring. At some point I found myself just always either recording or touring. And even then I planned to like someday I'll go back to college or someday mm-hmm. I'll do this or that. But then, um, sort of during the, uh, during the time I was in, into another fast forwarding. Yeah. Years, yeah, we get to, yeah. I, I was, I was, really into uh, I, I just kept finding myself doing like creative direction and art direction and like visual things for other pro- other people's projects and things like you know, i remember you know for a while driving down when i was living in la i would drive down to revelation five days a week and be like an art director there and oh be, wow you know, I was that's like, awesome in the art department or like uh i remember before i moved out to la in this sort of early mid 90s i remember uh adam harvitz was doing this uh he and i were friends we knew each other in high school and, and we, we he was doing this uh this thing called die rollerblader so this like side <laughs> project and i just like just like boshed together some graphics for that or like you know oh. i was always i was always wanting to do things visually so outside of music it was really visual art that always appealed to me so any any way i could do that as sort of gainful employment or whatever yeah um not that the like the the thing with, with ad rock was was pro bono that was free but like yeah like, like revelation stuff or just art directing people's records so and actually what i do for a living now is which is creative direction with like a, a big creative agency oh nice that has offices around the world is very very visual and, and i actually find myself you know doing things that are art still artistically rewarding and, and working music into it as much as I can, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I still like to make music. I still, you know, whenever, you know, obviously I've, I've got two kids and a, and a mortgage and mouths to feed. So, and I don't want to be away from them. So I can't get it for, for 10 out of 12 months. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah, it must be, I mean, you still tour. It's, it's gotta be rough, but you know, I'll still do the occasional four day tour. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and, I'm, and I never, you know, when I'm home, I never put my, uh, you know, I never stop making music. Yeah, I play my guitar every day. I sing to my kids. I write songs with my kids. I amazing. You know, they're, they're taking piano lessons and they love music. And you know, music is still, is still very much, you know, uh, part of my life every single day. Yeah, I mean, I remember when you worked at the Pyramid Club too. That was like late '80s, early '90s. Some crazy yeah, shows was, there too, man. Yeah, I worked at the yeah Pyramid Club from like '88. To, I don't know to maybe into the early. Yeah, days. man, that was, that was a crazy spot, man. Especially back then, for sure. Yeah, I did everything there. I did the door. I DJed. I booked shows. I actually, booked shows there for a while. We did like hardcore matinees. Yeah, that's crazy and, shit uh, there. Um, yeah. into, or into another man. Your your vocals on into another totally totally like to another level. It was incredible to hear like. I don't know, just you singing like that because nobody really heard that. I heard some of it in underdog stuff, but you really pushed yourself and like, yeah, yeah it was very, awesome, very different, was, and that was very deliberately different. That, a lot of that was Drew and I were like, how can we make a band that's completely, you know, like shock <laughs> people and probably alienate a million people? We, we used to laugh about it, and I was like, and and I always, I always loved guys like Freddie Mercury and Rob Halford and yeah. people who could like 
sing three octaves and, and like and Drew and I, you know, when Drew and I, even when we were in Ether Today together, we would listen to to Queen, Pink Floyd, and, and T Rex and, awesome. and Judas Priest and like so much stuff that wasn't hardcore. Yeah. Just love, he's like me, we just love music. I mean, like, yeah. To this day I listen to all of that. Did more. you take vocal lessons for that to like or anything? No. No. No, no. no it was always I was always able to to sing and I always had range. But yeah, it's um, crazy. You held that back in the in underdog, and she can never know a little bit on well, the vanishing point, but yeah, a little bit. But I, but it, it, I would always kind of it, whatever felt appropriate to a song. You yeah, know? like it was never like a conscious thing. Like it felt appropriate to that piece of music. It was just the way I wrote the song. So maybe I was just going to scream and yell this whole song, or maybe yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, when that record came yeah. out, like I think it was was it the seven inch the first thing you put out? Wait, was it um, no with with into another? It was a it was uh, a twelve inch. It was okay. it was Revelation. Uh, yeah, I remember, and and it was all at first. It was kind of like a tongue in cheek thing, and then we just started having so much fun with it that it, it ended up lasting from ninety to ninety seven. So, Damn, I, I didn't know that was ninety. That's crazy. I thought it was later. No, no. The first show was was the first show I ever played. I think it was uh, into another in White Zombie at the Pyramid. Wow! Nineteen. Holy shit! White Zombie at the Pyramid too is crazy. <laughs> yeah. Then you guys got some great tours. Then you guys were touring a lot, man. You were grinding for into another. Yeah, night. we did. We toured a lot. There was one year I remember where we toured for ten out of the twelve months of that Damn. year. Just back and forth, Europe and the States, and it was just yeah. But we we loved playing live. We never we never captured on record what we did live or how we sounded live. We were always a better live. Yeah, I agree. Band. And, yeah. Uh, and I would we, say same with Underdog too. Same with Underdog. Same with Vanishing oh, yeah, Point. Oh yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, for sure. So, damn man. So yeah. So into another lasted that long you guys i think i said video i think you had a video on mtv or video somewhere i remember maybe we did we did we we had a nightmare with our label and everything we like we recorded this album we went on a tour with uh with the ramones and white zombie and the record wasn't in any the cd wasn't in any source yet like they totally they dropped the ball with distribution they were like we were on hollywood records they stopped being distributed by Red, like Sony or so, or, or no, they stopped being distributed by Polygram, and they were making a new deal. And so, not only was our record not in the stores, we, we went on the store, we made this video. The label fucked up the audio on the video when they gave it to MTV, so it had this Damn. like really low level. The CD, when it was finally in stores, first it, it, we were touring in Europe, and it had the right jewel case and artwork, but it had the wrong music on the disc. Oh like my shit God, like that. Dude. So the reason the band, one of the main reasons the band broke up is we sued our record label and we were in litigation oh, for a while. And then we like, it just killed the band. That killed sucks, the band. We were in litigation. Yeah. And, uh, and then I was like <sighs> depressed for a while. And then like in the late, the band formally disbanded. Like we just stopped playing all together in, uh, 97. We were, we were, in london i was living in london for most of 97 we were recording we 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 sued our label in that time because we just became so frustrated with them and then that record never came out um we all just kind of had to go our separate ways and just like do something else to survive the only thing i did musically between then and you know 
15 years later making an EP with Into Another uh, called Omens, which we did. Yeah, like yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Or something. The only thing I did was I, my friend was in a band called Dead Z, so I sang a song with him on, on the album. Like, literally, that's the What's it called, Dead Z? Yeah, the band was I Dead remember Z, that. Name, yeah. I sang us. We, we they did a Sebado cover, uh, brand, brand new love, and so I sang with wow. my friend Elijah, and uh, and and that, but that was the only thing. That was literally the only recording I did in those years. We we so, we, we, we super bummed on music and everything in the industry. We were just like, yeah, it was rough time. It was it was a rough time because not only did we sue our label, but until we finally got like a settlement for that lawsuit. I actually wasn't allowed to do anything musically because of the fucking contract. And Damn. It was, just, it, was, it was a nightmare. It's like just tight. It's like locked yeah. in there. Yeah, that's crazy, man. Yep. So when did you come? When did you become a dad? Uh, well, I, I became a dad in 2008. My daughter, okay. Charlotte, was born in December of 2008. Um, my wife, Jamie, and I have been together for 18 years married for wow that's awesome 12 12 and a half years um, amazing and uh yeah i have a 10 year old daughter named charlotte and a six-year-old son named clive and uh awesome bought bought a place in in manhattan in 2012 and uh yeah, amazing on the upper west side and just doing the doing the dad thing yeah man it's so it's so crazy becoming parents and trying to balance i mean yeah i try to I definitely tour less and I definitely take my son with me when I can. And it's hard, man, especially doing music and having a family, trying to keep that balance and leaving and coming home and missing them. Yeah. It's a blessing and a curse for sure. I'm very, I'm lucky I can still play music, but I, I like being home too, though. You know, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, and, it's, and it's great to have your kids uh, be part of it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so. Um, and then Underdog still plays shows, which is awesome. You guys are playing shows. You were, yeah, you know. I actually do shows with both Underdog and Into Another, so it's 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 great. Got, in fact, we have shows coming up. Are you doing any shows in Cali or anything, or no? No, nothing booked yet. I mean, we probably should. The, the last time I played in California was uh, the Rev. Yeah, that was show. yeah, Rev show. That was it. That's awesome. Um, and then one both more thing bands. too about the. Uh, Obviously, the vegetarianism stuff, too. You get into that through Youth of Today, obviously, back then, before. Even before we're not in this alone, I think, they were on that vegetarian tip early, right? Yeah, yeah. I, so I was in the band before we're not in this alone, but we, uh, Ray and Purcell and I all became vegetarians uh, around the same time, I guess around like 85-ish. Um, was, was that through like the PETA videos and stuff like that, or just... Because before that was before they got Krishna conscious. For me, too. actually, it's funny you say that. For me, actually, a PETA video was really, really got me thinking about it. And mm -hmm. that's going me back too. to like 80, 83 or 84. I remember outside of, I was on the Upper East Side, and I think there were some people outside of like Hunter or somewhere, and they had, um, they actually had a, like a TV and a VCR and like, you know, Damn. we're playing videos and, the, and I, I, there was a video of lambs being slaughtered and you could hear them screaming and, and uh, it had such an impact on me. It gave me fucking nightmares. And wow. I, I remember just thinking like, God, I love animals so much. Like, why, where, why would I eat them? You know? Mm -hmm. and, like, and it just, yeah. So that's, it's, it actually was the, the it was a PETA video from like some activists that were out on the street that Damn. got me really thinking about vegetarianism. And then 
I'd say throughout 1984, I started to really wean myself off of meat. And then, uh, yeah. and then in 85, I was like, fuck it. This is, I'm just done. Like, I don't, I don't miss it. Like, I'm not gonna go back. Yeah. And, um, and then I didn't become vegan until 1990. And that was, uh, still that's way early. People didn't know what that fucking word was back then. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like no, they didn't. It's funny <laughs> you say that. Cause yeah, people, people don't realize that now they don't realize like <laughs> how weird it is to be able to go into a, a, a supermarket dude. in the Midwest and find soy milk and fucking oat milk and shit. It's like crazy dude. What, back then, like in the, in the, in the eighties and the, in the late eighties and early nineties, like, I can tell you in the early nineties when I was touring with, uh, with into another started hitting, we started going on the road in 91. Um, soy milk was like finding gold. It was like, <laughs> you could find it in New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Like if you were in fucking Des Moines, you didn't find any fucking Hell soy no. milk. You were eating like avocado toast every day. Like, yeah, people don't fucking realize that finding tofu true, or fucking food time. Like, it, like at the, like it, Kids have it so fucking easy these days. It's amazing how it's come full circle. Which is great. Yeah, vegan's like the biggest trend, but it's like the most important trend because it's saving the fucking planet and animals. It's so amazing to see it come full circle. Yeah. And in my heart, besides KRS-One, my philosophy and that song Beef, in my heart, I feel like hardcore music was the first and foremost music. Whatever. Okay, The Smiths. Okay, my bad. Meat is murder. Um, But in that genre, Underground was pushing that shit way before anything and people thought we were people crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it was really kind of this very outlandish, fringy, like, you know, lunatic fringe idea. And now Mm -hmm. it's, I love the fact that everyone, every single pedestrian outside my office right now knows what plant based diet it's amazing dude it's it's absolutely amazing well and and, i mean right now it's like we're staring the the next mass extinction in the face if we don't fucking you know address Mm global warming and yeah you know, I agree you know one of the biggest contributors is animal agriculture so yep. it's literally we we're now at the point where we know the scientific community knows that animal agriculture is untenable it, you can't keep doing it like yeah. like it, it's horrifying but in a way it's it's kind of great that we've reached this tipping point where people know we we got to cut this shit out like we can't like our our grandchildren aren't going to inherit a planet that's habitable I know. If we don't cut it out. It's amazing. So. Like th- this year, the first time ever was the first plant-based commercial in the Super Bowl for the um, Beyond Burger with Carl's Jr. They had it for that in the Grammys, like the first time ever in history. It's just so amazing to see that shit, dude. Like, Yeah, yeah, I know. I can't believe like Carl's Jr. has Beyond Burger. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> it'd be nice if they stopped killing cows, too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But like, Yeah. But like the Del Taco have it and like... Fucking umami burgers, number one burgers, the Impossible Burger. It's just like they have a fat burger out here. It's it's just crazy to see that man and like and know that the meat industry and the dairy industry are fucking feeling it, man. Like it's Impossible and Beyond are like the biggest threats ever. It's fucking. Well, you can see they feel threatened. Like you know, uh, milk has the dairy industry has all these milk ads now out that are basically like trying to insult soy milk. (laughs) milk does the body good it's so yeah. fucked all the shit we, you, like when you're a kid you like the like the uh the four food groups what you're supposed to eat yeah, all, all that, that shit, shit was created it was created by the beef board and the dairy council dude. And, yeah it was all 
It was all money. It was, you know, I mean, it, it was all, the, the science was always there. It's not like this is all new. Like, we, we've always known, you know, zoologically that we're, that we're primates, right? And we know what primates eat. Like, we, yeah. we, you know, with the exception of some that eat, like, the occasional termite, like, mm-hmm. we're, we're not we're not carnivores, you know? We're, uh, we're you know, we have the physiology of, of herbivores. And, and, but... You know, I mean, it was always there, but you have big money, like just like how how big money keeps us burning fossil fuel. There, mm-hmm. there were people, you know, out of the that were like subscribers to Popular Mechanics, were making fucking electric cars in the fifties. They were making cars that could run on hydrogen in the fifties. But yeah. you can't, you know, you've got big oil companies bill fifty billion dollars. You know, they net fifty billion dollars every fiscal quarter. They're not giving that shit up anytime soon. Oh no, man. You know, until they until they they're starting, they've invested. Thank God, they've invested hundreds of billions of dollars in alternative energy because they know that that's where everything's going. And but they yeah. didn't start doing that until they saw profit at the end of that process. So it's crazy. You know, man. money money drives everything, and uh, it does. You know, so that's why I say it's it's almost a blessing in disguise that animal agriculture is untenable. I mean, they're going to keep doing it. You know, unfortunately, because it's so fucking brutal and horrifying and cruel, but at least they see how profitable plant-based products can be. Exactly. They're more sustainable. You don't have to use 1,500 pounds of grain and thousands of gallons of water to yield a pound of seitan or tofu. Yeah, it's or true, man. A gallon of water make one hamburger. It's fucking insane. <laughs> My um. I have, a, I have a friend who's a vegan, he's a cardiologist at Cedar sinai he's vegan, there's like six vegan doctors over there, and they said when they go into the cafeteria for lunch, like all the food they're serving causes all the heart problems, and it's like, right. it's just payoffs, like whoever's putting that food into there, they're paying off the hospital, it's just like all like big money, and it's fucking, yep. it's just crazy when people don't put two and two together, like what you said, how you saw that video as a kid, and you're like, I love animals, why am I eating them? I think yep. it's it's so hard for people to make that connection. Like all these people are like are dog rescuers and dog lovers, but they eat hamburgers. It's they don't really yeah. get the point yet, you know. Yeah, I remember at one point I, I I volunteered for Greenpeace for like a minute when I was when I was like a a kind of newly minted, very um, enthusiastic vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And I remember it was. It was I was with all these Greenpeace people and they're like, Hey, you want to come to lunch with us? I was like, sure. And went to like some diner somewhere and they're all ordering hamburgers and like bacon cheeseburgers and shit. And I was like, you guys aren't vegetarians? Like, no. I was like, why the fuck are you trying to save whales? If you're, you know, if you're eating fucking cows, like, it makes no sense, man. It makes no fucking sense. So I got so turned off. Like, wow. Yeah. yeah. There's some people saying you can't really truly be a true environmentalist. If you eat meat, you can drive around in your, um, yeah. And by the way, I, you know, it's, it's definitely, I don't want to discourage anyone from being in, an activist. On Not, it. At all. Not I, at all. So, so, you know, God bless those people for doing what they're doing, but yeah, it would be great to take further steps to, mm-hmm. you know, it's like none of us can call ourselves a pure anything, right? No, like, you know, it's impossible. I, I'm a vegan, but I, I fly on airplanes that burn, you know, thousands of pounds of fuel and, and probably every flight I take kills God knows how many animals, you know what I mean? So it's like, True. we all try, we try and do our do best. We're not perfect. Yeah. We can. Um, you know, and apart from like some, a few genes in, in India who are like, you know, brushing like the gnats out of their way with a 
banana leaf as they walk or something. You know, it's like it's very mm-hmm. hard to make your way through the world. So, yeah, I love that statement. You can't be a true environmentalist if you're not, you know, if you eat meat. But I, I don't want those people that eat meat who are still like working to curb global warming. No, to totally, I, totally. Curb global warming. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's but it's like I go to the dentist and like everything they put in my mouth has been tested on animals. But I'm still going to go to the dentist and get my teeth fixed. Right. I'm still going right. to take an Uber with leather seats or airplane with leather seats. Like I'm always fighting for that online. That's just like you cannot be a perfect vegan. It's impossible. And right. vegans can be the worst for vegans, and they can scare people oh, away. I, I know. Like it's so silly. Like Beyonce, Beyonce and Jay Z pushing like a vegan catering company. Now they're saying you can win a contest and get free guest list the rest of their career if you become vegan. And people are like, oh my god, I saw wearing leather shoes. It's like, yeah, who gives a fuck? At least she's trying. The whole point yeah, is that exactly. they're trying. Yeah, I, I hate that that shit. That, you it's, know, it's, it's, it's always much, bad with every movement. It's 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 you know the extremism in any form. It's like it, you know, all power to you if you know if if you're more vegan than I am. But like, <laughs> we, you know, we're all if we've all got our eyes on the same prize and we all want just a cleaner, safer world for our kids and sustainable exactly. energy and sustainable food and and we want to end cruelty to you know to animals like i all good like I'll, I'll tell you where you can buy some non-leather shoes you know what i mean totally like, yeah i'm not gonna yeah. write you off because like anyway i know no it's totally true i mean it, there's a bunch of there's a bunch of people this guy named waka flocka he's like a huge rapper <laughs> he went vegan he was so about it and then somebody saw him eating honey or something and they flipped on this dude and he's like yo i ain't vegan no more you guys are worse than the cops and like he stopped being <laughs> vegan <laughs> so he was so bummed about it but it's like it's so true like i never liked that preachy shit i just like i call myself teachy not preachy i just try to like educate people and lead by example and not try to like shun anybody for you know at least, at least you're trying is my point but um Exactly, but it's, it's so so. Here we are now. You're a dad. You've done. You had such good success in music, and you inspired so many people. And um, still doing music, and now you're. And so, do you feel like a lot of the values that you got from being a hardcore punk rock kid, whether it be straight edge or being vegetarian, just whatever you got, you use that in your everyday life as a parent and a husband, probably. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. all the time. In fact, I just had a had a little conversation with my daughter walking her to school. Um, because she she like she she colored part of her hair or whatever and um mm-hmm. and she was telling me about some other kids at school who had done it and i said i said charlotte do you feel the need to do what the other kids are doing mm. when it comes to things like that she's like no daddy she's like i actually was the first one who came up with the idea <laughs> I was yeah like, i was like okay good and i was like you know you never have to feel <laughs> pressured to do what your friends are doing even the friends that you think are really really cool she's like i know that daddy that's you know so um so yeah things like individualism yeah bending to peer pressure and you know and i always always teach my kids like always side with the kid getting bullied never side with the bully i was like even if it doesn't feel safe yeah like i got you like no matter how unsafe you feel it's awesome. Always, always take the side of the kid being bullied. So, like, I've told my kids that since they understood words, you know. Like, and, and that's actually stuff I learned, like, really learned it in earnest in in the hardcore scene. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the kids in my family, like my my siblings and I, we kind of raised ourselves. We had kind of absentee parents. We kind of raised ourselves. So, like, th- those lessons I kind of learned on my own. And 
and I, I remember even in the hardcore scene, like I was, I would always, if I saw anyone getting bullied or if I saw someone in, you know, at a show trying to hurt people who was, who were smaller than they were or whatever, I always, always jumped in and I always took the side of the kid getting bullied. So that was like a big, love that. big deal for me. And, you know, look, now we have a fucking bully for our president. So it's still Word. a very, it's a very valuable lesson to learn. Yeah. Um, for kids. And definitely, um, I would say that, you know, real, you know, when the whole vegetarianism and veganism thing hit the hardcore scene and it caught on like wildfire, um, that was hugely inspirational to me to see like yeah. that I had all, you know, to, to realize all these people who are into the, this music that I'm into and the scene I'm into feel as passionate about this as I do, you know, that, that really was inspiring to me. And, and it, and, it was happening in that scene long before it was really catching on in the mainstream. Hundred percent. I mean, there are always people. There are always musicians who who were who into vegetarianism. And yeah. Paul McCartney and George Harrison. That's right. Know, were were Geezer Butler too? Long yeah. before we were. I didn't realize Geezer Butler. Like 30, 30 years vegan or something. Yeah. 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 I remember that uh, Tom Scholes from Boston, the guitar player from Boston. He was a vegan. When, when every other musician was like a vegetarianism, he Damn. was like using the word vegan. I was like, before anyone, That's I mean, amazing. like anybody, I remember t Tom Scholes wouldn't, th there was some, some function or event or something where like Boston and Michael Jackson were both supposed to be involved. And he was like, he pointed out that Michael Jackson has, uh, he had animals in captivity like tigers and chimpanzees and things you know, that shouldn't be. And he's like, I, I won't do it with a person who treats animals that way. Damn. And it was like, so he, he was like an early pioneer, but, but yeah, so, but hardcore, um, you know, definitely gave me a lot that I take with me to this day, sort of morally and yeah. ethically. I mean, you know, you have a full gamut of people in hardcore. You have, the hardcore scene had racists and bullies too. Mm -hmm. It had it had misogynists yeah. and, and and homophobes. And, and a lot of that, but you know, like my crew and my friends and the people that I associated with, um, I think we all inspired ourselves to be better people, and we all kind of learned moral and ethical lessons that we take with us, took yeah. with us into our adulthood, and will keep with us for the the rest you know, yeah he inspired me to be one too so thank you for that um thank you man. and you, you 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 seem to me like you always like the protector because you like the not the biggest one but i feel like you were like kind of protector of, of yeah people. well i was i was i was often the, the guy that would jump in and and, and like finish. you weren't afraid to throw down and protect something yeah you weren't afraid to do that, no, yeah. I, I, I wasn't i was never afraid to do that like yeah i mean there were definitely times when you know, whether it was Russ or, or Ray or any, anyone that I was on the road with, there were times when I would I would I would definitely step in to protect my friends and, and put an end to a threat or yeah you know, yeah. Do you can do you consider yourself an optimist or pessimist? Optimistic or pessimistic? Um, I, I like to think I strike a nice balance. I'm not I'm not a I'm not a, like a cynic who has just like a negative. Mm -hmm view there, there are times when i think i'm, I'm a realist and, and yeah it's my wife I, calls herself I, yeah. I, I can i can see a when there's like a bleak outcome or something you know like like you know for instance now like i'm not i'm not afraid to say i am a passion i am passionately anti-trump i probably Me feel too. more passionate about that than anything i've felt <laughs> in my yeah. adult life 
you know, because yeah. I think he's an existential threat to everything I hold dear. So scary. And, and is destroying this republic and just the philosophies on which it was founded and everything mm-hmm. else. But, you know, so like when a lot of my friends who feel the same way I feel politically get their hopes up about certain things, I will, in their mind, maybe be a little pessimistic and yeah. say, actually it's it's not this isn't the red line you think it is and it's not the tipping point you think it is and unfortunately six months from now you know and so far unfortunately i've been right about that stuff yeah although i was wrong when i when i predicted that he would lose the the general election but there were definitely forces outside of you know oh yeah but 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 so so i can be i can be sometimes real realistic to the point where other people might infer it as pessimism but yeah but i would say overall i'm, I'm an optimist because i do believe there are far more good and decent people in the world than than cruel Me bad too. people in the world i think there's more empathy and love in the world than hatred and apathy yeah so um so i think overall in the big picture i'm, I'm an optimist yeah, my wife calls me. Yeah, my wife says she's like a realist too. Like, yeah. Um, you know what's scary about Trump is that the, the, this country elected Bush for the second time. That that's what's starting. That's that's what scares me a little bit. Yeah. Well, but what always blows me away is that you know, and it, it's it's really so sad that not enough Americans value education, even self education. I don't care if somebody dropped out of school and they were in eighth grade, but to 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 deny yourself knowledge. And yeah. shut yourself down from oh, having a real worldview. You know, to, to me, Trump is the end result of reality TV and video games and, and, and social media. Like yes. all the things that are just brain numbing, anti intellectual bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, it blows me away that so many people who voted for him voted against their own self interest. They, they thought that a guy who, grew up with his dad with a $200 million trust fund from his dad, who's not only never worked an honest day in his life, but has cheated every worker that has ever worked for him, Mm -hmm. every contractor that's ever worked for him, um, who started off his career getting sued by the justice department for racism, for racial discrimination and Mm -hmm. did it twice. And who had just has a long history of being a pathological liar who, you know, to the point where, you know, only people now are realizing the guy was never even actually a fucking billionaire. He's had a lot of money. He's had hundreds of millions of dollars, mostly from his dad. Every business he ever started went bankrupt. Everything he's done was a sham, like Trump University or or an abject failure, like his casinos. But the guy is, you know, has refused to pay so many of his debts, um, and he's he is so existentially dangerous to this democracy but yes. the fact that working uh, so many working class people vote for him in, in any other developed country there's usually something tantamount to like the labor party in england or the mm-hmm. labor party in australia that you know the reason why the reason why people you know who work in this country have insurance or have paid you know time off is because of unions because of labor movements yeah right? because you know but something happened, you know, after the kind of Cold War and then the McCarthy era of the early 50s, where this, like, something happened where the working class thought it was patriotic to be against anything that that helped, you know, that was good for the for, for social mm-hmm. institutions, for yeah. social security, and for, for Medicaid and Medicaid. The funny thing is that 
anyone in the union now, they love their union benefits and they love anything the government can do for them. They love doing anything they can to get over on the government, get mm-hmm. a little bit more, get a little more overtime because there's overtime laws because of things like that. Yeah. But they'll vote for a guy like Trump. And they're only now realizing that they got less of a refund that, oh, wait, I see what, you know, what he did here. He gave, he gave his buddies all a tax break where, you know, guys like Wilbur Ross, who's already a billionaire, he's sticking millions more in his pocket since that tax break for the rich, you know? Mm-hmm. And just because everyone got like a little bit of a break year one, they think they're, they're all good. They don't realize that by, you know, 10 years into this tax break, the only people paying taxes really are going to be the working class and the poor. It's you know, fucked, it's man. like, it's so fucked. we got so hoodwinked by this fucking guy. And, and unfortunately in, you know, since Ronald Reagan, I mean, really since 1980, you know, between then and now CEOs of, of big companies, their, their income has increased almost a thousand percent. It's, it's over well over 900% and mm-hmm. almost a thousand percent. The average, and that's factoring in inflation, factoring in everything. Yeah. And factoring in all of those same things, the average worker's income has gone up 10%. You know, before Ronald Reagan, you, you could work a working class, uh, a, I'm sorry, a minimum wage job and go to any state school in this, in this country and pay your way through that state school. You could go to Michigan State on a minimum, you know, earning minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah, you'd break your back, but you could pay your way through school. You can't pay your way through any fucking state school on minimum wage now. No, dude. Yeah. You know, oh. So, like, the, and, and things are, you know, things are only going to get a lot worse under this administration because he's, he's, you know, I, I hate to break it to all the, the Trumpers who are working class people out there. This is not your guy. The guy that, that lives on Fifth Avenue and wouldn't fucking have anything to do with you or, you know, anyone that drives a fucking Ford F-150. Yeah. He, he's not yeah. your guy. He's yeah. not your fucking guy. He's, he's there to make guys like Wilbur Ross rich. He's there to put, you know, he put Scott Pruitt in charge of the EPA. Scott Pruitt had sued the EPA 11 times and was, is this anti-environmentalist and pro big oil as you can get. And the minute Scott Pruitt let his buddy Wilbur Ross know that he would be stripping away all these regulations, guess what? Wilbur Ross who has one of the biggest stakes in ethanol of anyone in the world, his net worth basically like doubled overnight because all the regulations went away. I mean, that, it's all happening right in front of our eyes. It's this giant fucking kleptocracy. And, you know, we're, we're all just fucking sitting back and, and worried about how many people liked our most recent post. I, I agree. Instagram. It's crazy that dude's from New York. The dude lives in Manhattan. That guy's like a New York dude living in a multicultural fucking city. It's just insane. Like, Obviously, he's been in a bubble his whole entire life. Doesn't give a fuck about anybody but himself. Probably doesn't really yeah. even care about his kids or I his mean, wife. The one, but... thing, the one thing as a New Yorker that I take solace in is that New York hates him. New York hates Donald Trump <laughs> yeah. and always has. I mean, you, know, yeah. you look at poll numbers. But that's the irony, right? This this fucking guy that lives on Fifth Avenue in New York is is adored by people in in Mississippi and I know, dude. Rural Pennsylvania. It's just like, are you fucking kidding me? Like. How could you think that this is your guy? And they hate people who who would look out for their self interest. Mm-hmm. They hate Elizabeth Warren. They hate you know. I, I don't want to say they generally, yeah. but the majority of people in these red states hate the very people who would help them, who would help their children, who would who would who would would improve education and healthcare for their kids and their grandkids. Yeah, 
it, it's hard it's hard it's hard to i try to watch like do some vice news i do different places where i get my news but it's hard to get go down that rabbit hole it gets really dark and like i try to obviously live in live my live live my life the best i can every day but not getting too caught up in all but i have to keep obviously in touch with reality what's happening in, in our fucking country and the world but do you have like a source of news you go to every day do you check exactly. i mean it's just it's hard man it's especially you live right there too it's fucking wild man it's what do you what, what do you think what do you think the outcome is going to be you think we get well, reelected? Well, being an, an optimist, well, even <laughs> if even if he is, so I don't know what the near the near future outcome. I still worry. I think it's very likely that he he won't be reelected, and that there, you know, look, three million more people voted for for Hillary, and yeah. ten million more people voted for Democrats in this in the midterm elections. So the, yeah. the blue wave is a very real thing. It's really sad that the Electoral College exists because we wouldn't even be having this conversation mm-hmm. about Trump. Because yeah. the majority of this, you know, try explaining to anyone else in any other Democratic nation that you could you could lose by millions of votes and still win the presidency, right? So That's crazy. So so that keeps hope alive for me. And and um, but you know, I think like most very wealthy people, he'll never have to truly answer for his sins. You know, it's like how many billionaires are in jail? How many even millionaires are in jail? Mm-hmm. Very, 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 very few. Yeah. John DeLorean got caught on tape, you know, making a massive drug deal and he was acquitted. So it's like, if you're rich, all you got to do is bribe one juror out of 12 and you're good. But I know it's um, crazy. The shit pops up but, every day about him. It's crazy. But I do think that there, I think enough people in this country are fired up that I feel optimistic about my kids' generation. I think mm-hmm. they are going to live in a world that has been forced to deal with with the environment yeah. and deal with deal with the threat of totalitarianism and kleptocracy. And to, you know, they can see how. I mean, we now see how you can rig the system here. You can through gerrymandering and you know through social media and allowing Russian bots to help you out and a lot of other things. You can literally take control of the most, the wealthiest, most powerful nation on earth. You know, the Republican Party, you know, which is pretty much just a bunch of white, old white guys like me, um, <laughs> through through gerrymandering, through disenfranchising people of color, and and making it almost impossible for them to vote. They've managed. They they managed for a time to have all three branches of government, even though the majority of people in this country didn't want that. So think about that. Like yeah. this is supposed to be a democracy, and it's demonstrably true that the vast majority of people did not want Republicans to control the House and the Senate, to control the you know all three branches of government, to control the executive, judicial, and legislative branches of this government. But that's exactly what the Republicans were able to pull off, Man. just by redrawing lines on a map and making it yeah. really hard for Black and Brown people to vote. And it's fucking scary. Man. It's really scary. That, man. that shouldn't be possible in a democracy. And so, I th- but I think that the fact that all this stuff's been exposed, yeah, and the fact that we've got a bunch of young people in the House and the Senate, and um, more so in the House now, but there will be more in the Senate, and and hopefully in 2020 we'll have a you know a, a president who addresses climate change and and everything else i i'm yeah. hopeful for the future I, I am hopeful for the future because the majority is on our side yeah 100 so. percent. and my final question to you is do you have any daily rituals 
daily rituals. Um, I mean, they're probably all really boring. Um, <laughs> you know, for, I'll give you one just to show you how, like, when I can't sleep at night, I play chess on my iPad. Okay? Wow. Like, that's how. Okay. So do I get up and, like, you know, do, like, transcendental meditation and then go for a hike up, like, this this mm-hmm. hill near my house? I don't know because I'm still, like, I live in the city and, uh, you know, but, but I, I, you know, of course, the, the first thing I do every morning is hug, I hug my kids and tell them I love them. Amazing. And it's the last thing I do every night. Awesome. And I do it as often as I can throughout the day. And, yeah. uh, you know, I like to sing with my kids and, and travel with my kids and, awesome. and my wife as much as I can. So I like to do anything that isn't work. And if my if my kids and my wife are involved, then, then yeah. I'm in heaven. So I, I, I just make time with my family my daily ritual and trying to impart what little wisdom I have left in my aging old brain. <laughs> not that old man. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> you're not, you're not a coffee guy. Uh, I do. I do, So yeah. Okay. So as far as that goes, I, I, I drink coffee, but only in the morning. I can yeah. only drink. So I do every morning. I start my day usually with um, <clears throat> some, some oat milk with three or four shots of espresso in it. Nice. And a little bit of maple syrup. That's my jam. Oh, right nice. It's my morning. It's my morning drink. And then um, for the rest of the day and into the evening, I drink tea. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a I'm kind of a Yorkshire Gold guy. That's my, that's my tea. <laughs> nice. And uh, and again, a little bit of maple syrup and either oat milk or soy milk in my tea. Is ma- maple syrup good for you? Isn't it? I think it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I just heard yeah. something about that recently, actually. But, uh, yeah, and then, um, yeah, that's about it. I cook a lot. I cook. I'm, I'm, I've always been big on the cooking. Oh, awesome. So. Yeah, I, I suck at that. So, yeah, I do I do a lot of cooking. And, You're and cooking of, every day? Uh, yeah, I cook something every day. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we eat at restaurants a lot, too. Yeah, yeah, we are too much, I, too. I cook. I cook every day. You like Candle 79? What's that? You like Candle 79? I do. Candle seventy nine actually made my the wedding cakes twelve. Years oh wow! Ago, so awesome man. Wedding, yeah, that's awesome. But shout out to Benet. Yeah. She owns that spot. She's amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, I love Candle seventy nine. Yeah. yeah, and actually, her so her parents I think are close with my in laws. Oh nice. And uh, yeah, so small I world. Ended up getting two different uh, two different wedding cakes from them for my wedding. It was, yeah. It was, I love that place. They have, they actually have a place on, on my side of town. I live on the yeah, they have the cafe. The they have like the west. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they have Candle Cafe West. Sick. Well, awesome. Well, I pre- appreciate your time and I appreciate everything you 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 brought to my life with your music and just knowing you when I moved to New York and you always be cool with me and um, great time seeing your band sure. and everything. Yeah, man, you've you've always always been a good friend and and, uh, and I appreciate what you. Uh, what you're doing for young people and for, Thank you. You know, for, for all these generations that, that uh, came after you and me. Um, you're putting a lot of good out into the world. Thank you, brother. I appreciate your time and um, hope to see you soon in real life. Soon, you sometime too, soon. <laughs> Thank you, Richie, right. for your time, brother. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. Um, please rate, review, uh, subscribe. If you haven't subscribed yet to this podcast, please do that. And whatever platform you are listening to this on, I'm glad you found me. You can rate me and review me on there also. 
So thank you guys sincerely for the support. I cannot wait for you guys to hear the next one.